stop the Lord Almighty. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the
Amen. Have a seat, everybody. Got a few announcements this morning, but first, how's everybody doing? Isn't that awesome that our Lord is forever alive and that you, the, the part that makes you, you, your soul, this thing, it, it's eternal. And if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, if he's your Lord and your Savior, you will spend forever. You will spend eternity with him. Hey, and that's a pretty awesome thing. Now, I have some announcements. Now, you know what these announcements I want to just tell you? These aren't just for information. This isn't just, you know, some time to waste. Give me the mic up here. I could be doing, you know more useful things, I'm sure, if I was just imparting information to you. These are opportunities for you to get involved, not only so that you can grow as Christians, but some of these are opportunities for you to actually sow the gospel into the world. So listen closely, follow these things, put them into your ears, into your heart, let them sit and decide whether or not this is uh, some place that God wants to move you. The first one is we've got Operation Christmas Child. And we're going to play a video for those of you who don't know what this is. Guys, go ahead and do that right now. Right now. 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 <laughs> It's like a whole world to them because for the first time they have received this precious gift. The message through the box is not only the toy that makes them smile. The message here is that Jesus loves them. You've got an army of volunteers that pack the boxes. They're helping OCC to take the gospel literally to millions of children. We are opening doors for other churches and other parts of the world to do ministry in their local community. They receive a box and also an invitation to come back and learn more about Christ. We just don't want to just hand out a box and stop there. We want them to grow in their faith. So it started with a box and it's ending with communities and countries being changed. ceases to amaze me how a simple box can change the world for a child. Thousands will be impacted by just one gift. So last year we put together 260 of these boxes. 260 came right from this church. Millions will be coming from churches all over uh, the United States, and they're going into these areas. In some places, they haven't even heard of the gospel, all right? So they're not only getting these boxes, these amazing things, and you saw the smile on these people's face. They're getting, like, you know, a T-shirt. They're getting a little car. It's amazing because they've never had anything like this before. They don't need iPhones or iMacs or anything like that. They just need to know that somebody loves them, that somebody somewhere on, on the other side of the world is praying for them. And, 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 and they start to wonder why. Why is that the case? And you say that, they say that it just starts with the box. Yeah, that's the start of the process. Because, you see, they're not just giving them these boxes and then walking away. This box is the start of a journey for these people. 
These kids are going to learn because of what this whole program is all about. They're going to learn about Jesus Christ. They're going to learn about the gospel. And it's going to change their lives. It's going to change the lives of that community. Amen? We can be a part of that. Grab some information out front in the lobby. We've already got a stack of boxes up there, but we're not even close to 260, and I know that we can beat that this year. So everybody, get plugged in on that if you can. Um, we're also going to be having Thanksgiving here at the church. Uh, Thanksgiving Day, we'll have the big screens going. Football all day, full spread. Uh, if you want to join us here, if you want to bring the whole family, that's cool too. Uh, obviously, there's no charge. Uh, we'll, we'll be here from uh, about 1230 on uh, until all the food's gone or the games are over. Uh, we'll also be this week, you know, we're, we've been doing this foster care thing, right? You guys, Eric, you've heard Eric talk all about this. Have you heard this? Say amen. amen. Okay, thank you. You're following me here on this. Okay. You know, they, there was a statistic I saw on Facebook this morning, so you know it's true. Um, but not really. It was from, uh, it, it was from, uh, it was a statistic of showing how many foster kids in the United States that were waiting to be adopted. And there's about 100,000 kids in foster care. And you're looking at them by state by state. And I, I looked at states that were like Alaska in terms of numbers, right? So you got New Hampshire, Wyoming, North Dakota, Alaska, about pretty even in terms of the number of people in the state, about 600,000 or so. In Wyoming, you had about 115 kids waiting to be adopted. About the same population as here in Alaska. In Alaska, we had 700 kids waiting to be taken uh, into families from foster care. So what we're doing is this church is stepping up. Um, Eric has taken about 300 of them. So we've got about 400 to go. We're going to be doing training. If you want to do this, if God's moving you to be a foster parent, we're going to train you. We're going to do it right here at the church. Friday, this Friday from 6 to 7.30, OCS training starts right here. It's free. Come. There's going to be snacks um, and child care available for you. Communication cards, you've all got one in your bulletin. Please use these. If you're here for the first or second time, this is really important. We want you to fill out the front if you're here for the first time. The back if you're here for the second time. We're going to get some information from you. We're going to get you plugged in. We're going to get you to know what's uh, going, uh, let you know what's going on here at Friends Church. But also, please use the communication cards for any information you would like us to know here at the church. If you've got prayer requests, put it down. If you've got a praise report you want the church to know, put it down. If you've got a change in address, please take that communication card out, fill it out, and give it to us. This is the new way. This is the primary way we're going to communicate with you. If, if you're old school and you want to use email, that's cool too. You know, that's fine. But uh, we prefer paper. Because uh, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna sit down and we're gonna write you a note uh, back, handwritten note. Uh, we're gonna pray for the kids right now, and we'll release them to kids' church. So let's do that. Heavenly Father, our kids are so special to us because they are the ones that we're going to take the gospel into the next generation. That's the primary reason why you put man and woman together, uh, so that they can have progeny. They can raise up children to know you, to further the gospel from one generation to the next. So we pray for them. And we pray for those teachers, and we pray for the volunteers in Kids Church right now. Uh, give them wisdom. Give them insight. Give them patience. Uh, in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Okay, kids, you can go. Uh, adults, we're going to stay in worship.
Amen. Our God reigns. You know, let me just uh, tell you how excited I am. Last week, uh, on Friday, right before I made that video, if you, if you haven't got that video message, um, I sent out a video talking about the foster care class that we're doing this week. OCS called the church 
and they asked if we could help them place two kids. That is awesome. That is something that I've been praying for for so long. You know, two and a half years ago, I just said, you know, it'd be awesome if you had a foster care ministry. That's before we had any kids. We have five now. We don't have 300. We are actually in the process of looking at three more, so pray with us on that. Um, But it has completely shaped our whole, I mean, it's changed our whole perspective on the gospel. It's the greatest gift that God has ever let us be a part of, is to be foster parents. It is messy and it is hard, but it is incredible. And if, as a body, I mean, if we could have 40 or 50 families show up on Friday... We could empty out the foster system into this church where we have the kids coming and hearing about the love of Christ and they're in homes that are gospel-centered. It would rock this valley. It would absolutely change this valley. Um, So that's my selfish push on that. Please show up on Friday if you you feel like... um, you know, God has called you to be a part of it. I don't want to force you to be, but I will. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, so good. Let's pray. Father, um, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for the call that you've placed on us, that you've called us to live a life worthy of the gospel. And Lord, that we can accomplish that through your spirit and your grace, that we can live beyond our means, beyond our strength, beyond our Uh, resources because we are partakers of a heavenly kingdom. And Lord, I pray this morning that as we get into your word, Lord, that you would meet us, that you would strengthen us with your truth. God, I I know that in this season, this month, especially as a body, there is much pain and loss. But Lord, I thank you that you are faithful to meet your people within that. And to draw their attention to our eternal hope in Christ. So I pray that you'd be glorified in this place today. That your word would bring strength through our frames, Lord. And that uh, you would draw our attention to your glory. Uh, I pray that you would bless every person who gives this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we've got a lot to cover, so let's get into it. So for the the past two or three uh, decades, there's been philosophers and preachers who have been introducing people to a notion of defeater beliefs. Um, And a defeater belief is this. If you believe A, if A is true, if belief A is true, then belief B cannot be true. For example, it's widely assumed in our culture today that there cannot be one true religion. This is something we see throughout our society, this belief. And it's a de- defeater belief because if you hold that to be true, then it defeats Christianity. Because Christians believe that there is only one way to God. And so you can engage with people through this country or personal evangelism. You can give all the reasons for thinking that the gospel is true. It might start with the truthfulness of God's word or Christ's death and resurrection. All kind of apologetics. Uh, your own personal testimony but in a, in a defeater belief culture, the person can just turn around and say, but what about Hinduism? Because this idea that there can't be one true religion has been defeated by 
a, a larger claim. So, because people have bought into popular culture beliefs that there are many ways to get to God, it already defeats your belief if you're a Christian, and they don't have to listen seriously to what you're saying. Now, what's interesting is that these defeater beliefs are highly dependent upon specific cultures. For example, if you're in the Middle East, the issue is not whether or not there are many ways to get to God. No one would argue with you over there that there is only one true religion. The issue would be which religion is it? So depending on the culture you're in, frames the way that your defeater beliefs are shaped. Um, when a culture develops an array of defeater beliefs, these defeater beliefs all come together and they compose what is uh, often called an implausibility structure. Meaning, um, if you take all of these beliefs together that defeat all the other ones, anything outside of this structure seems implausible. It doesn't make sense. We've already proven that this defeats that and this defeats that. So we build this structure and it's through this structure that we see the world. It's through this structure that we uh, correspond with one another, that we react to certain situations. We all have these belief systems. And in secular societies, most people don't feel like Christianity is something that needs to even be evaluated. Why? Because it's already been defeated through the implausibility structures of culture. Um, it can't be true. In fact, it would actually be ludicrous. Why would we spend our time even teasing the idea? Uh, Alvin Platinga widely asserts that people avoid Christianity not because they have really examined its teaching and found them wanting, but because their culture gives them huge plausibilities by the media, through art, through the expertise and impression impressive credentials of its spokespersons to believe a series of defeater beliefs that, that they know are true and since they are true Christianity cannot be true I read a uh, part of a book in one of my classes at Eternity Bible College and in it a French philosopher and humans or a secular humanist uh, compares five world religions including Christianity at the end of each chapter he gives a critique about each one talking about uh, where their strengths and weaknesses are. And the thing that was actually kind of amazing, and the reason our professor asked us to read it, is that his, uh, his summation, his uh, description of the Christian life was actually pretty darn good. Um, being a secular humanist, uh, he, he spent a lot of time in the Word. His doctrine was, uh, it was pretty darn good. Our, our professor was actually impressed as well. Um, but the thing that really struck us was that at the end of the chapter, um, his critique. What was his critique on Christianity? To bring it all to an end after talking about uh, the cross and all of these different parts of the gospel and salvation and free gift of righteousness, he simply said it was too good to be true. See, that's an implausibility structure. It's, it strikes again. Because in his framework, in his mindset, he's already defeated the idea that it can be true. So instead of arguing with it, he just goes, yeah. I mean, it's nice, but it's not truth. And he moves on to the next one. And he was so critical of the other ones. 
And it just sort of made me go like, wow, like, it's amazing how stuck we can get into our own worldviews. Um, you know, we've been spending our time in the last few months walking through the letters Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. Remember, Paul wrote these letters uh, while on his first mission trip to Europe. Thessalonica is the second city that Paul preached in after Philippi. Um, it's the capital city of Macedonia, which is nowadays Greece. Um, and Paul was only able to be there for a few weeks. He came in, he preached in the, in the synagogues. Um, and then people started hearing about this gospel, this new belief system. And because their implausibility structures, red alerts started going up. They pushed them out of town. We don't want that here. It's ludicrous. It doesn't make any sense. Um, it was offensive. Um, and so Paul gets pushed out of town before serious persecution hits him. And eventually he writes two letters to the church while he's staying in Corinth. In his first letter, Paul wrote uh, to the believers in Thessalonica, these new believers who were left with a lot of questions about their faith. He uh, defends his integrity as a minister of... Uh, his integrity, the, the integrity of his ministry as an apostle. He encourages the new believers in their faith. He urges them to live holy lives in the face of this persecution. Um, he gets into issues about sexuality, work, um, and then woven throughout, he reminds them of the hope of Christ's coming. And what, what you kind of can sense throughout these letters as well is that Paul is responding to a suspicion on the part of some that the exclusive claim of Christ is a bit narrow. Honestly, one of the most difficult pressures that the Christian church faced in a pagan world at that time until about A.D. 300 uh, was what we would call pluralism. That there were many different religions, so many different modes of salvation, and all of them were arguing for their corner of the world. These ideologies that were trying to draw you into their flock. Uh, but none of them would dare say that they were the only way. None of them. And then come along the apostles preaching a gospel that was starting to proclaim something that was absolutely contrary to the popular defeated beliefs of the day. The church was born and believers began professing that Jesus is the only way. In fact, the believers identified themselves and were identified by being called followers of the way. It was like a stake was driven into the center of pagan society, marking out, this is where the line is drawn. This is it. This is the only way. How narrow and bigoted is that? How implausible is that? I mean, <clears throat> you know, for thousands of years, people uh, believed that the earth was the center of the universe. And everything spun around it because humanity loves to be the center of the universe. And then in one day in 1610, a man named Galileo came into a discovery and he found out we're actually not. Actually, the sun is the center of our solar system. And everything rotates in orbit around it. And I, I say that because it reminds me of this time where 
this pagan world, everything revolved around man. And here come these men proclaiming, no, 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 no. Everything revolves around the Son. Everything. He is the only way. And just like it was in 1610, it didn't matter how strong your defeater belief was. It didn't matter how much thought you had in thinking that earth was the center of the universe. Truth was shaking reality. The reality that we think is real. In, in the world in Paul's day lived within an implausibility structure that would not recognize the cross. They refused the cross. It went against everything humanism stood for. But the New Testament writers did not flinch. And it was not because they were bigoted or narrow. It's because God opened their eyes to the problem that there was that actually existed. Alienation from the God that was there, rebellion against Him, wrath suspended over us righteously, and we must be reconciled to Him. Freed from our guilt, freed from our shame, freed from our fears, freed from our broken minds and hearts, from what theologians call original sin, and so transformed by the power of the Spirit of God that ultimately one day we will be ushered into His perfect presence forever and eternity. The created order reconciled to God and all the purposes of God brought to fruition with Jesus at the center as our Savior and Lord. This was not a narrow way of thinking. This was blowing up the reality of what was even possible. It was huge. It was revolutionary. What we find in the first chapter of 2 Thessalonians is that Paul had received a new report about the church in Thessalonica. Some of the themes of 1 Thessalonians are absent in this second letter. But on the other hand, some of the issues have gotten much worse. They've been ratcheted up. Um, One of the things that is clear in the first chapter is that the church is being persecuted more violently than ever before in our need of pastoral direction and encouragement. I'm going to be honest with you, this sermon took me a while, and I didn't have time to do any PowerPoints, so I hope you got your Bible, and if you do, open with me to 2 Thessalonians 1, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, I'm going to be reading it out of the ESV, Um, this is what God's Word says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all of your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed considered it, God considered it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to us. And when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, 
inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believed because our testimony to you is believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith for his power, by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. So the Thessalonian church is going through a difficult time with pressures on it both from the culture surrounding it and its own immaturity and lack of understanding of the word. What is Paul's response to the church in this difficult time? How does the church know that they have truly found the way? Among all the other implausibility structures around them that are claiming that it's false, it's ludicrous, it cannot be true. How do we know? Look at verse 4 or 3 and 4. Paul writes, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love for every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the church of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you're enduring. Paul says, I know that there are those who are trying to defeat your beliefs. Who are trying to discredit the power of the cross. But church, the very li- your very lives confirm of the power of the gospel. Because in the midst of your very real persecution and affliction, what is happening? Your faith is growing abundantly. And your love for one another is increasing. Praise God. In 1 Thessalonians, we learn that Paul had become extremely concerned about the believers' resolve to continue their faith. In fact, that's the reason he sends Timothy back to them to find out about their faith and to strengthen and encourage them in their faith. And in 1 Thessalonians 3, Paul says, For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it had come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow... The tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. Man, how many of you know that the enemy wants nothing more than to destroy us? The enemy wants nothing more than to destroy your faith. There's a real war going on for your soul. John 15, Jesus said this, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love you because you're of it. But because you're not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, the world hates you. It's like, thanks, Jesus. It's comforting. (laughs) But he made no qualms about it. He was real. One of the greatest ways that the enemy tries to discredit the truth of the gospel is through persecution and trials. He wants nothing more than to crush us. And our broken world has a lot of avenues in which that can be accomplished. But what the enemy desires to use 
for evil, God can turn and use for his glory. What the enemy desires to use for destruction, faithfully God can turn and use for his glory. You know, it has been a hard month for us as a church, hasn't it? We have lost. We have lost those we love. It's real loss. There's no minimizing this. There's no beating around it and saying, oh, you know. No, we have lost. But you know, I was marveling this week because through it all, I have seen God bring his people together as a family. I have witnessed and heard testimonies of the most incredible declarations of faith. We weep and we worship. I have seen men and women of this church pour themselves out for one another in love. And just as Paul says to the church so long ago in Thessalonica, Church, I thank God for you. I thank God for you. I thank God that the foundation of our faith is not tied solely to the doctrines we believe, but the evidence of God's power working in our lives, able to sustain us through even the darkest of storms. That our faith is increasing and our love for one another is abounding. When I was reading that this week, I'm like, that is us, man. God is doing that work in the midst of all of this loss in us because He is glorious. And He can take destruction and use it for glory. Persecution should be a defeater belief. You know, if Christianity is just a moral compass for good living then trials should destroy it. <laughs> but for the past 2,000 years, the church of God has suffered an unimaginable loss. Unimaginable loss. I mean, you look at the first three centuries, people being thrown to lions, skinned alive, and then thrown in bins of salt, boiled in oil stitched up in the carcass of animals and told to run through the woods so they could be chased by wolves. All of these things happened. It should have laid the gospel to rest. Suffering should have defeated it. But it didn't. Instead, the, the church grew exponentially as people went to their deaths worshiping the Lord, that He is good and He reigns on the throne. In the first decade of Christ's death and resurrection, the church was made up of around 3,000 people. To put that in perspective for you, that only accounts for 4,000th of 1% of the Roman Empire. Not even close to 1%. It's, it's a number so statistically in, in, insignificant, it, it, it's, it's not even worth saying. Persecution should have snuffed them out. But by the year A.D. 350, there were 33 million Christians. 
They grew to a point that they made up 56% of the known world, of the whole population of that time. It's just like, what happened? I'll tell you what happened. What the enemy planned for evil, God used for his glory. This verse is so key. John 16, Jesus said, In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, for I have overcome this world. See, that is the ultimate trump card. It defeats all other beliefs in our world's implausibility structures. It means that our circumstances do not have to dictate our life. Christ can dictate our life. Paul writes in Romans 8, 31-39, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, Paul writes, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who has loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angel nor demon, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Persecution and affliction has nothing on the power of the gospel and what God can do in our brokenness. This is exactly where Paul moves in his letter to the suffering believers in Thessalonica. He wants the Thessalonians to view their present circumstance through the lens of God's perfect future promises. The amazing thing about Scripture is that God unveils pre-written history. Let me say that again. When we open up this word, God unveils pre-written history. You are able to see into the future. God has the perfect perspective about everything. In Isaiah 46, Isaiah writes, or the Lord speaks through the prophet Isaiah, For I am God and there is no other I am God and no one is like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet done. Saying my plan will take place and I will do all of my will. That is awesome. See with God the future is far from uncertain. And through his word he has graciously provided a preview of what is coming Armed with the knowledge of his plans, believers can view the future with expectancy and not certainty, not uncertainty. Regardless of the storms that we are in, 
Paul writes to the church that in Jesus' return, he brings follow, his followers three things. Relief from their enemies. Ultimate rest from their sorrows. And the just reward for their faithfulness. Relief, rest, and reward. Look at verse 5 through 9. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considered it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Now, we're not going to be able to get into all of this because there is a lot here. But, most of us are familiar with the expression, things are not always as they seem. You know, through personal experience, we learn that from a very young age, don't we? Things can be deceiving. As we grow in our understanding of how God works, we quickly begin to realize that God is often at work in ways that we, we just we cannot see. And even though our eyes may tell us one thing when viewing the world, we know that there is so much more to the picture. This is, this is the reason that Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, This momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the, things that are un- for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And Paul here tells the church that while apparently those who oppose the gospel and trouble God's people have an upper hand, apparently, behind the scenes God is orchestrating human history to accomplish His purpose. At Jesus' coming, God will bring final relief to all believers who have suffered at the hands of the ungodly. He's going to answer the prayers of His people who have cried out to Him in Revelation 6. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before You will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? As Charles Ryrie notes, that while the Thessalonians' present adversaries seem so powerful, There is one who is mightier still, who will dispense out punishment on their tormentors when he appears in his great power and glory. I'm going to be honest with you. When it comes to this first point, I feel kind of um, removed in a way because I don't really have that many enemies to that degree. I mean, we, we are blessed to live in the place that we do. Um, but when we think of our brothers and sisters in the Lord who right now are being crucified, who right now are losing their limbs in front of their families or being fill in the blank because they profess the name of the Lord. This is an amazing comfort. And I, uh, I can just imagine that in the time that Paul was writing this, that there were some seriously horrendous things that were happening to the church. 
and God is not far off and he will repay every knee will bow and he will right every wrong it's an amazing thing to remember and next Paul says that God will bring ultimate relief to every believer at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels on that day God will provide eternal rest for his people now the word translated rest here often describes the releasing of a bowstring taking the tension off the string taking the string off the bow and the Apostle Paul peels back the curtains to give us a picture of what this day will look like in Revelations 21 when he says I heard a loud voice from the throne saying behold the dwelling place of God is with man he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away if you want a stress-free life there's your cure the fact that Paul points to a future rest does not suggest though that there is no rest in this life even in the most troubling times, God, He still has a purpose. But here's a clarifier for us. Though we might not rest from our sorrows, God promises in His Word that in His love and grace that we can find rest in our sorrows. I don't think it's fair for us to say you know what? God's just going to take you out of every single pit. What happens if you lose a spouse? There are things that we are going to walk through until the other side of glory. And in His grace, He will begin to heal our hearts. But there's no taking that away. So I think it's important for us to realize... That God's faithfulness is not just that He will lift us from the pit as His Word proclaims that He will do faithfully in times. But even in the midst of our deepest distress, that He will relieve us in it. I know that might sound like a contradiction, but David had an amazing, he was an amazing example of this truth. The Psalms are full of anguish and pain and hope and rest simultaneously. Uh, Psalms 4. 1. David cries out, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. What does he say? Not that you have relieved me from my distress. No, he says, You have relieved me in my distress. Distress here comes from the Hebrew word that means a small, narrow, constricting, tight place where our hearts can become a prison. It just presses down on every single angle. And when I looked up the Hebrew word for relief here, I was just like, man, God, this is so, such an incredible picture. Because the word literally translates for relief, it literally translates to enlarge in the room. 
that even in our distress, God can give us space to breathe. To rest. And this is exactly, this is exactly what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. We are hard pressed on every side, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And always carrying within us the death of Christ so that the life of Christ can be manifested in us. We are pressed down. The enemy presses down. But in God's grace, man, it's implausible. Plausibility clause. It is implausible that a jar of clay can stand the crushing pressure of life. It does not make sense. Unless Jesus is who he really is. The word says we have this treasure within our frames. The son of God who lives now as our perfect intercessor. He lives to defeat our doubt. He lives to defeat our shame. He lives to defeat our fears. And he lives to defeat our pains. He is faithful. And he will meet us in the storm. And he will give us rest. Honestly, I think um, as difficult as it may be to grasp, the relief granted from our enemies and the rest provided from our sorrows, um, it pales in comparison in the end to the reward that we will receive for our faith. Paul describes this reward uh, surpasses our understanding. Verse 10, On that day he will come to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. The present sufferings of following Christ, it doesn't make sense without this promise. But when we view the present through the lens of promises like this, we gain an understanding, a perspective on how it is possible to see good through our pain. God is going to turn the tables completely for those who face affliction, for those who face persecution, for those who face pain. God will one day grant the privilege, listen to this, with Sharing with Jesus in the manifestation of his glory. The glory that Paul describes is beyond comparison. You notice that the things of heaven are described about what they're not. Because you can't even begin to describe what they are. What is his glory like? It's not like anything we know. 
I don't even know what this means, but I feel my spirit become, come alive and, and reach out to touch us like, Lord, let me know that truth. This is why we hold fast to faith. If the world falls down around us, let us not let go of this. Our faith in the Lord through persecution and affliction is not in vain. Ever. Paul says in Romans 5 that our suffering produces endurance and our endurance produces character and our character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. And Paul says here that one day our hope will lead us to share with Christ the manifestation of His radiating glory. John Stott offers an analogy of a light bulb by suggesting that Jesus' glory shines through His people like an electrical current travels through its filaments. This is what he writes. For when the current is switched on, it becomes incandescent. So when Jesus is revealed in His glory, He will be glorified in His people. We will not only see, but share His glory. We will be more than a filament which glows temporarily. We will be radically and permanently changed, being transformed into His likeness. We will glow, we will glow forever with the glory of Christ, as indeed He glows forever in the glory of the Father. Though in times of sorrow the world can become gray, but one day, if we believe in faith, God will radiate His glory through our, our gray world. Jesus alone is the source of glory, and at His coming, His glorified people will display it in all of its fullness. This is what the Apostle John says in 1 John 3, 2. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him as He is. In His coming, Christ will bring relief. Rest and reward and reward for those who believe. Now look at verse 11. Paul writes, To this end we always pray for you. In other words, with this in mind, in the midst of your suffering and the reality of Christ's coming, we pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good in every work of faith by His power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him, according to the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. I feel like Paul's prayers are super intentional. Like every word he says is super weighty. It's important for us to realize what is he actually praying for this suffering church. And this is what he prays. He says first that God would consider them worthy of His calling. God can use every circumstance in our lives, even our sufferings and afflictions, to prepare, to prepare us for future glory. Our faithfulness in persecution and steadfast hope in trials reveals the genuineness of our faith. And here, Paul urges the church, as he does in Philippians 3.12, to press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of, of God in Christ. Now, to be clear, this has nothing to do with achieving God's favor. When God called us to Himself through Christ, He did it in His free grace to an unworthy and undeserving people. 
But since then, He has been calling us to live a life worthy of the calling with which we have been called. In other words, this is who you are, so live as you are. This is what you have been given in which we have been called, and He has equipped us with His Spirit to make it so. We do not prove ourselves worthy of His calling in order to be saved. We are proved worthy because we are saved and because we live faithfully for our King. Whatever the world might do. And the second thing Paul prays for is that His power, God's power, would fulfill every desire for goodness and work of faith. The word fulfill here means to accomplish and bring to its proper end. So Paul is asking for God who began a good work in them to bring it to completion. This, this prayer is for their ongoing sanctification. Lord, that you, would, that you would strengthen them as you sanctify them. That they might make it to the end. Now the thing that stood out to me about this prayer... Paul being as intentional as he is, as he does not pray one time for God to remove them from their trials. He knew exactly what was at stake. If anybody knew what persecution was like and what people were going to face because of the gospel, Paul knew. He knew exactly what was at stake. The stakes were high for these young Christians. And what he doesn't say is, Lord, free them from the trial. That's super important for us to understand. Because what he actually says is keep them faithful in their suffering, grounded in their faith, and steadfast in their work. He understood that there are things in this life, there are seasons of this life that we will not be removed from persecution, from affliction. But that does not dictate what God can do even in the midst of it. And the the fact was, is that the greatest testimony to the church abroad at this particular time was that this church was steadfast and faithful in the face of persecution. This is exactly what he says in verse 4. We boast about you to the churches of God. Why? Because of your steadfast faith in the midst of persecution and afflictions. It was the power of the gospel being seen clearly on earth. Through their trials. And Paul ultimately prays that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and Lord Jesus. John Stott writes, When by God's power God's people live a life worthy of his calling... And when they resolve issues in goodness and their faith and works, then Jesus himself is seen and honored in them. And they, through union with him, are seen as the image of God. It is a breathtaking concept that even now, before the end, this double glorification can take place according to God's grace. As always, grace and glory go together. Glory is the end and grace is the means to it. Worship team, you can come forward. I know we're getting a little bit long, but I'm going to read this. I I need to say this. The author of Hebrews writes this. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. 
So let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have a great high priest who intercedes on our behalf, and he knows us fully. You know, in John 4, we read that Jesus is coming into a city of Samaria, and he comes to a well, it's called Jacob's Well, and it says that he is tired, he is wearied of his journey, he says, I'm done. And the word says that he sits down, he sends his disciples into town, tells them to bring him back some food. reality is we, we see times where Jesus was tired. He was exhausted. Do you feel tired right now? Jesus knows the weight of being tired. In John 11, we read of a good friend of Jesus named Lazarus. He got sick and he died. And the scripture said that Jesus' spirit was deeply moved by this. And somewhere in the deepest part of Jesus, he resonated with the sorrow of and the pain that was going on. And the scripture says that he wept. He entered into the, all the sorrow and the reality of death, and he wept. Do you feel the gravity of loss this morning? Jesus has walked in it. If we move to Matthew 26, we see that Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane, and he says to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he brings Peter and the two sons of Zebedee with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he says to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Sit here and keep watch over me. He walks away from them only a few feet. And he falls on his face and he prays. Have you ever gotten to the place where you don't know what to do? Like there is nothing left to do. You've shaken your fists, you've screamed, you've sobbed your tears, and it feels like you have nothing left. Jesus has felt the, felt the weight of being overwhelmed. And what happens? One of the 12 come up to him, and Judas portrays him with a kiss. senselessly they stand his broken bloody body in front of a crowd the same crowd that once was going around talking about how great he was was now screaming in rage crucify him do you feel betrayed Jesus has felt the gravity and the weight of betrayal weight of being hated. He knew it fully. They took him and they nailed him to a cross. And on it he felt the full gravity and weight of all of our sin as God poured out on him his just and perfect wrath. Jesus knows what it feels like to suffer. 
Some of you are tired this morning. You feel overwhelmed. You feel like you feel the weight of loss. Some of you might feel betrayed. Some of you are living in the gravity of suffering. And I'm here to say that he is here. And he's not saying, suck it up. When are you going to have enough faith? No. He's here. And he wants to sit with you in your pain. He says, I know. I know. I know the pressures you face, which is why I have stored within jars of clay a treasure. That as the world tries to crush you, I will not let it. As the world tries to destroy you, I will bring redemption. As the world kills you, I will bring eternal life. Because I've overcome the world. I've overcome the world. stories I was thinking about all week long was the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We've heard it our whole lives, but it's just been resonating in my mind because we see a picture of these men who are facing much persecution and trials are thrown into a furnace that is so hot that the guards who brought them to it were killed. And Jesus doesn't just go and say, come out of the fire. He reveals himself in it joins them in the flames and in that moment they know the power of God and the world which feels like it's pressing down on them expands a little bit larger and they rest in the presence of their king and not only those three men but an entire nation sees the power of God see this world will love to discredit the gospel in a hundred different ways you know, one of the strongest testimonies that the church has to proclaim the power of the gospel is our response in the midst of persecution and suffering. That we have been given a foundation that is stronger than this earth. And we have been given a promise that no matter what faces us, our treasure is secure in Christ lead us home. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth of who you are. Lord, I thank you for in this season, as we mourn the loss of life, the reality of the brokenness around us, that we can find rest in the storm. Not because you take it away, but because you reveal your faithfulness for those today that just feel like they are in the furnace of life. I pray that they would understand and feel your presence, your power, your love. And Lord, you would set our focus on the reality of your promises. That we would run the face, the race set before us faithfully and receive 
strengthen us in our faith, God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. If you have children this morning, would you please go get them before they feel